Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Cleo Wade. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our friends at Warner Brothers, who just came out with a powerful new film, Just Mercy. I love reading a book or seeing a film that changes my perspective on the world we live in. I felt that way the first time I read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and I'm so excited that his story has been made into an extraordinary feature film starring Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, and Brie Larson. The movie is based on Brian's life. He's a true American hero. As a civil rights lawyer, Brian has brought much-needed compassion, dignity, and mercy to our criminal justice system. He's liberated more than 100 people from death row, proving their innocence in the process, and to this day, he continues to fight bravely for the disadvantaged and disenfranchised. You cannot watch this film without feeling empathy for the people being portrayed on the screen and a deep gratitude for what Brian has done to make our society more just for all of us. So go see Just Mercy. It's in select theaters on Christmas Day and everywhere on January 10th. Get your tickets now. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Cleo Wade is a poet, activist, the author of Heart Talk, and also a new book called Where to Begin. When it comes to making a difference in the world, it can feel like a task that is bigger than ourselves. We all wonder, where do we start? Today, Cleo is sharing the inspiration behind her poetry and how she hopes the world will receive it. We talk about the responsibility we have as humans on this planet and how that responsibility includes telling our stories. It also includes recognizing our wounds and knowing what we need to heal them, and then learning how to invite more meaning into our everyday lives. Cleo explains how simple words have the power to create larger actions, 
and to remember to look beyond ourselves because the way we treat others has a ripple effect. Empathy is putting ourselves in someone else's shoes non-judgmentally. And how can you put yourself in someone's shoes if you don't know what shoes they have on? Okay, let's get to my chat with Cleo Wade. Congrats on your book. Thank you so much. It's almost like a devotional. Is that the idea that you can just open it? Yeah. You know, for me, I always joke that if there's any way you could describe a lot of my books, it's kind of like books to read for people who don't like to read, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially for where to begin, because it is about being able to do what you can with what you've got, where you are, and in your own way. I really wanted for even how you read the book to be written in a way where you could pick up the book wherever you wanted or take one message from it or take one longer message from it. Mm -hmm. And there's really no rules to how to read my books or take in the information because everything I write, I hope I write in a way that can be something we can practice, not something that we can, oh, I I can check that off of my list. It's something I know, but more, oh, I'm going to have a relationship with these words because they remind me of something that's important. Right. And I think that there's something so powerful about publishing such a small, you know, you can read it in like 20 or 30 minutes and to have so few words and then, but to make each one count, I think is sort of a, it's kind of a wild act. Well, a lot of people I feel are looking for simple ways to name complicated things inside of them. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I write, one of the longest parts of my process is the editing process because I always think about what is the way that will bring that moment of really kind of easy clarity to something that has been really hard or really tough. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's something that, you know, we may have an inner conflict about, whether that's racism, you know, I'll write in the book that, you know, the world will say to you, we need to end racism, start by healing it in your own family. Right. And I, and that simple sentence, which is start by healing it in your own family, that allows for you to sit down at the Thanksgiving table and start to notice where it may be unhealed in your family, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Or if it says, you know, the world will say to you a really complicated idea, like there's too much bias and bigotry. What do we do about bias and bigotry? The book says, you know, have the first conversation at your own kitchen table, Mm -hmm. which means, you know, find your safe place and admit where you might have a blind spot or parts of you that think something that you're not sure is right or trying to understand. And and so I think that for me, I keep the writing simple because I think that it allows for the actions to be bigger. Yeah. No, I totally, and as a talker and a thinker, I sometimes, I'm one of those people who can get so far ahead of myself and like in terms of rationalizing or overly intellectualizing. And I think that I'm not alone in that, but some of it is just the embodied simple experience and like that and very specific and subtle like I love when you talk about how there's a lot of talk right now about how we need to have hard conversations and that you think we need to have healing conversations yeah and I think that's such an incredible distinction just even in the way that you respond to it emotionally yeah because you know, healing conversations can still be challenging and difficult, but one of the distinctions I make between a healing conversation and a hard conversation 
is that when you're having a healing conversation, you are actively rooting for the other person's healing throughout the dialogue and throughout mm-hmm. the confrontation, which means that everything you say to them and in every way that you're interacting with them, you are believing that they are capable of understanding where you're coming from, of change, having a change of heart or a change of mind, and you are equally capable of having a change of mind or a change of heart. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is that intention is the difference. Yeah. I think a lot of the times when we're like, okay, I'm going to have a hard conversation. We're like, that means that I'm just going to go in there and say what needs to be said. And mm-hmm. that your only intention is that I'm going to say this thing or have this thing get off my chest. And it's a, I feel as though those can oftentimes be a slightly me-centered experience. Mm-hmm. Whereas what is the point of the confrontation? What is the point of the conversation? Is it for, you know, each person reaching their individual and our collective potential? Or is it so that someone can feel wrong and your right can feel right? Exactly. And even if that happens, how far does that get us? Exactly. And it's, and I get it's such a, it's such a fine line and, and particularly in the context of racism and microaggressions and whose job is it to educate who and being cognizant of how for people who have been marginalized or oppressed, it's not their responsibility. It's like, it's your responsibility. But I feel like those conversations, well, all of that is true. When you go into a conversation and you feel like the intent of the other is to shame you. I was actually talking about this with Brene Brown in the context of some of the things that I've observed on the internet as people have asked questions and then they get shamed and ridiculed. And yeah. she was like, shame is always the tool of the oppressor. Yeah. And so it, it isn't that productive. And it's no. like, but where, where do you think the line is in terms of like, where is the productive conversation and where is for people who feel like we aren't making enough progress or we're, there needs to be more of an acknowledgement, which I completely agree with in the context of racism, like where, but where do you think the most productive conversation is? Well, I think that when we can look at each person and these movements as a work in progress rather than, you know, a, did they get it right today or, or mm-hmm. not, or did they make progress or not, or did they acknowledge that they are a work in progress or not? And I think that we have to understand that the very nature of, you know, whether it's understanding race or class or inequity or inequality is that there is no there in any of that, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so there's not one day where you just wake up because you've read How to Be an Anti-Racist or you've read all of Angela Davis's books or, you know, taken a really deep dive into the Black experience that you wake up and understand how to move through the world perfectly when it comes to race. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we can, you know, allow for there to be space for each other's growing pains and also become better listeners, which means that, you know, I don't believe that there's people who are responsible for being teachers. Mm -hmm. I think if you choose to be a teacher, that is so amazing and it is such a gift to us. But if you don't, one thing I do think everyone is responsible for is being able to own and harness and hopefully tell their own story so that others can learn from it. Because mm-hmm. I think that that's healing not only for you as a person, but for your community. And in that, we have to be listeners so that 
someone can be, I think every single person's a storyteller who's in need of a listener. I don't think ever, and I think that there's a difference between that and demanding everyone to be a teacher so that you can be a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting. And empathy is like, empathy is created through story, right? I mean, empathy is putting ourselves in someone else's shoes non-judgmentally. And how can you put yourself in someone's shoes if you don't know what shoes they have on? We'll get back to Cleo Wade in just a second. One of my career highlights was interviewing Brian Stevenson for this podcast. Brian is a civil rights lawyer and social justice activist. He's led incredibly important work to confront and overcome racial inequality and has fought tirelessly for much needed criminal justice reform. Brian's life has been turned into a feature film and I couldn't think of a more deserving story to be told on screen. The film, Just Mercy, centers around one of Brian's earliest clients, a man named Walter McMillan, who was arrested and falsely convicted of murder in 1987. In the movie, Brian is played by Michael B. Jordan and Walter by Jamie Foxx. There are so many extraordinary components to the film and what Brian has been able to achieve and inspire in a legal system that has too often failed to act with compassion and too often failed to find justice. This is a story that will change the way you think about our justice system. It will make you question whether any of us can really have freedom if all of us don't. And most importantly, it will remind you that we're all human, that we share so much in common, and that even in our darkest hours, there can be room for hope and redemption. Just Mercy is in select theaters on Christmas Day and everywhere on January 10th. Get tickets now. And in the meantime, I hope you'll take a look at Brian's work and you can check out my conversation with him on the Goop podcast. Here at Goop, sex is one of our favorite topics to talk about. On this podcast and over on the Goop site, we spend a lot of time asking questions and thinking about women's sexuality. There's still so much shame around sexuality, particularly for women, when it really is one of our greatest life forces. From talking to many women and therapists, doctors, and sexuality educators, we've seen that there are so many ways to express our sexuality. And for some, lingerie is a part of that, even if no one else is going to see it. Flirt Em All, founded by Jennifer Zuccarini, is a woman's lingerie and ready-to-wear brand that has been stocked in the Goop sex shop forever. Jennifer's mission is to support a woman's strength, confidence, and sexuality with fiercely feminine lingerie and clothing. She believes in celebrating the art of dressing up and undressing. Each Fleur de Mal piece is beautiful. They're made with high-quality, luxurious fabrics like French Lever's lace and silk, and the brand designs everything from silk tuxedo pants to slinky dresses, one-piece bathing suits, and bras. To shop it all and get 15% off site-wide, head to fleurdemal.com and use Fleur Loves Goop. That's F-L-E-U-R-L-O-V-E-S G-O-O-P. Back to my chat with Cleo Wade. Do you think it's fair to ask? You know what I mean? Like in the context of conversations, do you feel like those are the conversations we need? Like everyone coming more from a place of curiosity? I mean, I think that curiosity is the gateway to creativity. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our problems require creative solutions. I think curiosity is the gateway to connectivity and connection because having an openness to learn is 
is critical. Having a demand to be taught is not appropriate. And I think that there's a difference between the two. And I think that there's a way to navigate that that is that works. Totally. Um, and I don't think that it also has to be like a very harsh either or. And I think that sometimes we might cross the line or mess up in the sense of saying like, can you explain that to me? Or like, why? Or, why? or, or, or you know, a lot of the times I'll find that people will call, say, oh, you know what? We're, I'm going to call my friend XYZ and have her tell you guys this thing. And, and putting people on the spot to have to be teachers or this is in, in A, you know, what's interesting is because on the wall, on the one hand, you're trying to educate a group of people, which is well-intentioned, right? On the other hand, we're, you know, is it, are, we're creating a job or a role or a task of someone where they were, their agency was not present to decide to step into it. Right. And so you can always be like, you know what, shoot, like, sorry, if you're okay with that, I actually like just realized I just demanded an, <laughs> to add an extra role to your day today when you're probably already off being, you know, CEO, mother, co-parent, et cetera, you know, all the other things that you, you might be. Right. No, that makes sense. And in light of that too, though, how I love the conversation around silence. And I think you talk a lot about in your childhood or growing up in Louisiana, like you were silent amidst racism, overt racism, I'm assuming towards you or things that you just sort of witnessed. Was it your your friend Maude or someone? It was someone's friend Maude. It was someone I saw. (laughs) It was was like a really, I was, I saw it on my friend Katie posted it and then I tracked down the person who originally tweeted it and then it was their friend Maude. It's awesome. Well, Maude is wise because Maude once said, there are times when we must speak, not because you are going to change the other person, but because if you don't speak, they have changed you. Yeah. Which is so beautiful. And again, that also speaks to, I do think we have a responsibility to ourselves to tell our stories. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't think we owe it to anyone else or owe it to the world, but I do think that we are, our journey deserves it. And I think the world benefits from us knowing that we deserve deserve that. So mm-hmm. whether that means that you're just you're in a space and you're going to change the space or not based on your story, you you almost always have changed the space whether it was in a way that you hoped or whatever you wanted to get out of it or not, but by putting your story out there in the world and allowing it to be a part of other people's journey is something that they will very likely never completely forget. Mm-hmm. And I do think that when we tell our stories, they do imprint on whoever hears it. And so whether they subconsciously attach to some of the information or some of the dialogue or not, I think it sticks with them actually just in some way. Mm-hmm. And it certainly benefits you because I think that telling our stories is a healing tool for our lives. I think that, you know, so many of us are walking around with either open wounds or wounds that were never healed correctly in the first place. Totally. And the only way that we'll ever understand what we need to do with those wounds is by actually being able to really see them and know that they are there. And I think whether you're writing about it or telling a friend about it or speaking up about it, that's how you understand exactly what the wound is so that you can then know what you need to heal it. Totally. And one of the very first podcasts that we had, that I ever did, I interviewed this woman, Anita Merjani. She had this incredible near-death experience and was in, in the hospital dying from cancer and 
essentially sees her father who has passed and he sort of explains to her how she's responsible for her disease and what she needs to heal it. And then she sort of goes back into her body and spontaneously heals. Her story is amazing. I think it's becoming a movie. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And it's very subtle. And I think that it's one of the – seems like it's one of the theses of your book, which is – she was like, you are not – what she said was, you are not responsible for what's happened to you, but you are responsible to yourself to heal it. Hmm. which I think is hard sometimes to like parse that and distinguish it. But what I felt in reading your book is that it's like you, you quote James Baldwin, everything now we must assume is in our own hands. We have no right to assume otherwise. And you say, and this has always been true that it does start at home, right? Like it starts with each of us and that you can't, like change the world, but you can change yourself. And in doing so, you change the world. Right. Or who's to say what changing the world looks like and doesn't look like, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, who's to say that, you know, why isn't recycling at your house changing the world? Why isn't smiling at your neighbor changing the world? Why isn't changing the way your work environment feels for those around you changing the world? Are these people not in and of the world? Doesn't sharing with them a healed energy or investing in them happiness and joy and purpose and possibility, does that not change the way that they then move through the world? Mm -hmm. And one of the other things I wrote in the book was that, you know, our righteous acts create immeasurable ripples in the Mm -hmm. endless river of justice. And, you know, that one thing, that one way you treated someone, that is, that is not, that never stops with them. Right. And so everything is 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 a ripple, and and that is world change. Yeah, and it's that's a much more powerful stance than to feel like everything is insurmountable, everything is huge. There's nothing that I can do, and it's a balance. And we and I want to talk to you about your anxiety and your anxiety mantra. I often feel that where I'm like, oh my god, like what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? How am mm-hmm. I going to solve these problems? And but but the first thing you have to do is pause and say, wait, am I just trying to make myself feel better by trying to fix or do any of this? Mm -hmm. Am I doing this so that I can calm down and I can feel better about the world or I can feel safer as a mother? Or am I doing this because this is part of being a healthy citizen and being on this planet and I'm moral, you know, I think it was Audre Lorde who said, was it her who said that um, service or activism is is how I pay my rent on this planet? Mm -hmm. You know, is this just part of being on this planet and taking responsibility for the space you do take up yeah, and not taking it for granted. You know, one of the, this one thing I say often when I speak to companies about community building is I always quote from this one, it's actually from a rap song, it's really funny, but it's, uh, <laughs> it says you either build or destroy where you come from. Mm. And I think sometimes we don't realize that so few of our actions are neutral. So if I'm walking down the street and my headphones are on and I'm looking away and I'm I'm, you know, ignoring the world. Is that the most harmful thing on the planet? No. Is it less harmful than if I walked down the street and was, you know, breaking my neighbor's windows along the way and screaming? Yes. But is it building? Is it, you know, is being able to make eye contact with the people around you and say hi or or smiling at your neighbor or say, I hope you have a nice day or asking your neighbor or the people around you how they're doing and then actually listening to what they say. 
does that actively build your community? Yes. And so the thing that we oftentimes think is a neutral act is not. And then I think when it comes to how we want to get involved, we do it at a time where, oh my gosh, we heard the one thing about, you know, this going on in this administration or that, and it sets off an alarm in us that makes us feel upset. And it is powerful to take you know, our anger or our rage or our fear and turn it into positive action. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the way you actually sustain a relationship with consistent positive action in our world is for it to not be something that is that you're doing every time just to make yourself feel better about the state of our world. Right. Instead, having it be the same way that you're eating a salad. You know, there's probably a part of you that would like to have a slice of pizza, Every you know? part of me would like to have a slice of pizza. <laughs> but there's, you know, but there's a part of you that's like, you know what, I actually, to honor the, what I need mentally and physically for the day, there's no way I can have two slices of pizza at lunch, right. you know? And so I think that that is the way that you have cultivated a lifestyle around feeding and sustaining a healthy body. Mm-hmm. Now let's ask ourselves what we have to do or what mindset we need to be in so that we can be healthy citizens. Right. And, and, and so that it's a part of how we move through the world. It's a part of how we raise our kids. It's not something I go to do or I better do right now because outrage is happening. It's, oh, what, what, what did I do today? What did I do that was my part today? Whether that is just checking on one person that you work with. Mm-hmm. Or saying, you know, checking on one family member you haven't talked to in a while, and maybe it's going to a march, maybe it's not, maybe it's buying the T-shirt that day, or maybe it's just making sure that you recycle or compost. Or I, I, I think that the way we show up as a healthy citizen can be in such a variety of ways, and should be, and I think is only attainable if it is. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break. One of the principles that guides how the fashion team at Goop designs our clothing line is the idea of having fewer, beautifully made things that last for seasons. They're most interested in the kind of high-quality pieces that you can live in and love for a long time. This also applies to workout clothing, and Sweaty Buddy's power leggings live up to that standard. 20 years ago, Sweaty Buddy was created in London and has been shaping the activewear market ever since. They believe in using the highest quality, most flattering materials. Sweaty Buddy power leggings are engineered to be high performance and to work for every activity level, whether that's a morning run, Pilates, or chasing your kids around. Their leggings sculpt your legs almost like a second skin. They have convenient side and back pockets, and they're sweat wicking. The fabric is stretchy yet supportive, and perhaps most importantly, if I'm honest, super flattering. The high waist also stays up, so I don't find myself pulling them up in the middle of class at Tracy Anderson. Sweaty Buddy Power Leggings are available in multiple colors and prints at sweatybuddy.com goop. And right now, you can get 20% off your order by using code goop. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. 
It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And now back to today's conversation. Let's talk about anxiety. And then I'm sort of curious about like your the, like larger spiritual or sort of universal beliefs, like how you perceive the world. I'm curious about like what you, what you think that it all means and like how, how, how your work lives within that. Even in the context of like the evolution of purpose, yeah. where you talk about how your purpose can like this idea of like, find your purpose. Like we all have so many that evolve as we age. Yeah. I don't believe in finding a purpose or having a passion. Right. So what do you, what is it that you believe that like, we're just sort of all connected in this strange experience that we call life? I think we create and impose rules on ourselves that don't work for everybody. And I think that creating any type of standard and thinking it's going to work for every single type of person in the world is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I don't think that creating one way to go through life and have joy and happiness or feel good, it happens when we say, okay, find this one thing. And so I think that one of the things that from a really early time in our lives we're told is to find our passion or find our purpose. And that is what will make us happy. And A, I think it's really dangerous to tiptoe into the space of if I do this, then this, then happiness will come here. Totally. Because as we all know from life experience, that happiness is something that we cultivate in small, big, medium ways throughout the day, throughout the year. Sometimes it's easy to find. Sometimes it's hard to find. Sometimes it finds us. Sometimes it doesn't. And one thing never sustains one long period of happiness. And and you can't just do one kind of big one big work gesture and then say, okay, now I'm going to be happy. Even whether it's, you know, okay, if I have a child that I'm going to be happy, that's not the way happy. We know that that's not the way happiness works. So mm-hmm. why would, if I find my passion, quote unquote, or my purpose, I'll then be happy and know why I'm on this planet. And I think instead we can ask ourselves, you know, to me, what, what I always felt was more beneficial on my journey, because I think that when we set goals for ourselves, uh, you know, if they're, if someone's asking you to find your passion or your purpose, purpose at 16, why would that passion or purpose or thing, way that you look at your life, why would that be something that you still think is your passion, your purpose at 26, mm-hmm. at 46, at 66, at 76, and then you feel like you're somehow failing at having your passion or your purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think that we put ourselves in positions to fail at things that don't even make sense. Totally. Um, or to feel a sense of failure in ways that are not even actually relevant or helpful. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I think more about what are the tools, what are the practices so that I can actually feel that when I wash my dishes at, 
after dinner, I can bring passion or purpose to that, or I can bring passion or purpose to sitting down with my group of friends or sitting with a stranger or sitting, you know, for the 30-minute Uber car ride or whatever it is. How can I just be responsible for bringing bringing importance to every, every moment yeah. of my life? I agree. And I, I think culturally we I mean, besides othering, we also love sort of to categorize things and create steps and badges and yeah. and phases and things that you achieve, whether it's marriage or parenthood or your first job. And then there's this obvious letdown. Like there's the wedding, but then there's marriage and mm-hmm. marriage is hard. And I've always felt like it's, you know, life school and that everything is just preparation and training and, and endurance work for what comes next. Because I think as much as we want to believe that, to quote Barry Michaels from The Tools, that like there's no, um, you're never sort of absolved from pain and hard work, right? Like there's no, you're not off, you're never off the hook. There's no amount of money. There's no achievement. There's no destination. It's just like you have to keep going. And I think we not only is it, it's like this common, maybe it's just an American thing, I don't know, but this cultural delusion of like, there's a there there, right? Yeah. And so I think we set ourselves up too constantly for disappointment. Like I just, life to me is like an obstacle course and it's whack-a-mole. And if it's mm-hmm. not one thing this week, it's something else. And it's like a challenge. It's like, if you think about it as challenges, or hurdles or opportunities to learn, like then I feel like I have the energy to keep going. And our uh, feeling, uh, you know, of none, none of our feelings are sustained by one gesture or mm-hmm. one thing. And so, you know, you want a powerful relationship, then you don't commit once, you recommit every day. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want a, you know, a powerful work life, you don't have, you know, your your morale doesn't show up once a month in the team meeting. It shows up every day. Mm-hmm. And so I think that part of the hard part of our culture is that we are so convinced that one large gesture creates enough change or enough of a big idea that it sustains our feelings for much longer than they than it actually does. You know, you have, you know, this you have a wedding day and we think that that commitment ceremony that day you know was the gesture that is going to sustain the lifelong marriage mm-hmm. and and it's not you know we have to recommit rededicate redevote and that's you know the only way to embark on the experiment of 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 mating for life yeah and it's i think these i was actually talking about it with my therapist this morning because my, we had to evacuate last week from the fires. Yeah, and so hard. Is um, everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. I mean, so grateful. House is still standing, like probably a thousand feet from houses that burned. Wow. And so I'm like still in a state of hypervigilance. And I was like, I just, like when I think about the last, I'm like, I just want a break. Like I just need like it to be really easy. And he's like, he was in the Israeli army. And he's yeah. like, well, soldiers, you just take, take, Find the moment. You just take the micro break, but then yeah. you have to keep. You have to keep. You keep going. Yeah. And I think we, it's like we wait for the vacation, yeah. rather than finding ways to like create 
inner peace. Or by the way, or the diet week, right? or the vacation week, you know, and we think that you know, what we do in January is somehow going to sustain <laughs> our skin, our hair, our attitude, everything about us for the, for the, for the year. Yeah. And, you know, when we can get into a, you know, healthy habit, you know, one of the things that I wrote about inward to begin are our habits. And there's this one poem I wrote where I said that, you know, everything in life is a habit. And I say fear, bravery, gratitude, ingratitude, silence, speaking up, opening up, shutting down. And then at the end of the poem, it says, you know, which, which of these habits are worthy of this life? You most definitely get to live only once. Mm. And so when we think about what, you know, our habits hold up our lives. And so what habits are we willing to cultivate to hold up the life we want? Mm. And, and in that, that's when we're like, okay, you know, I, I have to have, you know, the habit of positive self-talk mm-hmm. makes uh, my ability to keep going so much easier. Right. Because I, I want a life that keeps going, right? You know, because it's, it, we know we act like the fact that we have to keep going is a burden, but because we keep going, our kids grow up and they and experience new things and they start a new grade and they learn more and they, and they, and we learn more. And we, you know, I don't know about you, but the woman I am today, I'm so thankful for isn't the woman I was 10 years ago or even five years ago. And so, you know, all of that, the, the keep goingness is so good actually. And so we, we, you know, is it, you know, what, what habit do we have of attach? What, what habit are we in? that attaches negativity to the keep goingness or that keeping going is dragging us rather than turning us into a leader. Right. Or enervating us. I think I love the idea of sort of the habits as, as the props of, of life. And then I also love this idea of how emotions, instead of allowing emotion to define you, like letting it move through you. Yeah. That's how I, um, I talk a little, it's, it's really funny because when I was making this book, uh, it's, this book is, it's much more of a concept book than, than heart talk. You know, Mm -hmm. heart talk is much more general. You could read it at any stage of life and, or whatever you're going through. And, and this book is like that, but I really specifically wrote it for the moment we're living in. And it has a lot to do, you know, if, if heart talk is about your relationship with yourself, where to begin is about your relationship with your community and with the world. And so it was really funny because when I was writing this, the very last thing I added to this book, I took an essay out to write about anxiety because I realized that I, between my own, um, you know, movements through anxiety and my friends and the people I've talked to along the road, I was like, you know, if I don't talk about this, there is just no, uh, the biggest block to our relationships with others is our, is anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, I have a mantra for anxiety that I use anytime I feel anxiety starting to move through my body, which is this is not you. This is something moving through you. It can leave out of the same door it came in. Mm-hmm. And when you know, one thing one of my one of my best girlfriends, Shade, said to me once is I remember it was a couple of years ago. It was actually like right right around the time of the election. And I said to her, I was like, you know, this the time I was like, these times are so traumatizing. And she was like, no. She was like, no. she was like, why affirm 
trauma. She's like, why would you affirm something you don't want inside of you or you don't want around you? Mm. You know, you can, it's one thing to say, I feel trauma or I feel this air of trauma in, 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 uh, around me. But she was like, but don't say I'm traumatized. Mm-hmm. Or as she, she said, and and I remember always thinking about that with anxiety. So if you'll ever notice, I'll always, I never say I have anxiety because I don't believe in affirming something that I don't truly believe is part of my spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, to I, I don't believe in affirming that in my body. And I it was so important for me to write about anxiety in this space and to give a tool for moving through it. Because I think it's one of the biggest things that hijacks us, right? It hijacks our breathing, which is our life force. It hijacks our thoughts, which build our world, uh, our immediate communities and the world around us and our families. It hijacks our sense of being and sense of self. And to me, why I think mantras are so powerful is because, you know, when anxiety has shown up in my life or fear or over being overwhelmed or being upset, the first thing I lose are is my thought flow, right? Mm-hmm. Because anxiety is, oh my God, you'll never get this done. And why are you even trying to do this? And there's no way to da da and da 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 And it just keeps going. And all of a sudden you're like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. How do I get back on path here? And I realized that with mantras, I was able to just grip back onto my thoughts. And so, because if I tried to argue, I still wasn't in control, right? Because I was having one thought and then another thought and then another one. And so I'd have the same thought I'd say over and over again. And I and I just kind of sit in, whether it was my chair on the airplane or, or at home or wherever I was, and it was, this is not you. This is something moving through you. It can leave out of the same door it came in. This is not you. This is something moving through you. And I realized that if I just said it over and over again, I could I could not, you know, I didn't immediately go into the most positive place, you know, but I wasn't in an argumentative space inside of myself and I wasn't in a negative space. I could start to neutralize because I do think that being able to neutralize actually puts us in the position to be able to be really good at being in the world. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Cleo Wade. For more, make sure to get a copy of her new book, Where to Begin. This is one of those books that should live on your nightstand. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.